podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. We're in week 10 of our summer message series, uh, Colossians, the Supremacy of Christ. If you have a Bible this morning, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. So you can follow along. You can follow along on your phone or other device as well. Um, But all summer long, we've been talking about how Jesus is supreme over all things, that he's completely unique in his authority, his power, his wisdom. There is no one like him, no one next to him, no one above him. Uh, As Paul puts it in Colossians 1.17, Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so uh, we've just been kind of reminding ourselves of that all summer. Last week, this week, and next week, uh, especially, we're looking at um, how the supremacy of Christ plays out in some very practical ways. So last week, we talked about how the supremacy of Jesus affects all the ways we divide ourselves, that he overcomes every division. This morning, we're going to talk about the supremacy of Christ over our identity. Next week, we'll talk about the supremacy of Christ over our families. And then the week after that, we'll talk about the supremacy of Christ over our work. So again, Paul, through the first part of Colossians, he has pointed our eyes and our hearts upward to this huge picture of who Jesus is, that he's the one who created all things, he's before all things, that in him all things hold together. And now over the the last week and these next couple weeks, we're getting into the very practical, the nitty gritty of if that is true, then this is how we live it out. If he's supreme overall and supreme in all, then it changes every single part of my life. And so this morning, we're going to talk about how the supremacy of Christ changes our identity. And uh, in, in Colossians 3 verses 12 through 17, part of what Paul does is he uses the language of clothing to try to teach us that we are um, not only changed on the inside but, uh, by Christ, but from the outside we are clothed in the character of Christ. And this becomes the, the way, the filter through which we see the world and ideally the filter through which the world sees us through the, the clothing that Christ puts on us. Now, you, uh, like me, know that in our culture, your clothes say a lot about you, right? And they can, they can pretty easily identify groups you fit in or, or what you value, what you don't value. And, and perhaps nowhere in our culture is this more evident than in a public high school. So I don't know the, the schools you grew up in, but mine was a, a public school in Topeka, and we had this big commons area where everyone would gather before school started. And so as you walked in, you could look around and you could see the different groups of people, and they were divided um, mostly by the way they dressed. And you could tell, for the most part, by looking at how they were dressed, what they were into, right? So there would be a group, uh, like our, our school was in Topeka, but it kind of sat out in the country all by itself, so we always had a strong representation of the rednecks, Right? And they'd be over there, and they'd have on their tight Wrangler jeans and their cowboy boots, and they had a skull ring, even though they were only 15, uh, which was always a little disturbing, you know. But, but you learned quickly as a freshman, like, you never ask a redneck for a drink of his Pepsi in class, right? Yeah, and those of you who know why are, are kind of disgusted right now, because that's not Pepsi in there. Uh, so, so you learn things like that, and you would, you would kind of go around the room, and you'd see the girls and all the, the sweatpants and the hoodies, and those were either like the, the softball girls or the cross-country girls. They just, they just really didn't care, so they'd show up in whatever, and you'd make your way around, and there'd be like the, the goth section. Um, there were, we had skaters, which again, we were out in the country, so that was kind of funny. Um, but they had like the big, uh, I think they were called Jinko pants. Some of you might remember those. Maybe you own some. You could fit like a adolescent child in a pant leg and not know that they were there. And then there was a big chain that looped around from their wallet to their belt. And 
Uh, you know, you had all these, the, the ones that entertained me where there was always like a loner section, which was funny because it was all the loners together. Uh, you know, like, I don't need friends. Neither do I. Let's hang out. Uh, so, you know, just you, but you could see there were just, there were distinctive styles of dress and, and you just knew that. And so in high school, it, once you get out of school, it's not quite as obvious, but it's still fairly obvious. Like if you go over to Riverside today and you see a large group of men standing in a parking lot in spandex, they're cyclists, hopefully, right? If not, just like drive away because you don't want any part of that. Or, or if you're in South Tulsa and you see a woman in yoga pants and a tank top, she's clearly going grocery shopping at Target because that's like the... That's the uniform that you have to wear, I think, to get... I don't know if there's a bouncer, but if there was, I think they'd make them leave if they come dressed normally. But, uh, you know, still, any, you still see in, in so many ways, our clothes make statements about us, what we value, what we care about. You know, maybe it's... Maybe you're wearing the, the, the clothing, the jersey of a certain team, and you're making a statement about, this is what I value, this is what I care about. Paul uses some of this language in Colossians 3 to remind us that when we surrender our lives to Christ, we are to be clothed in the character of Christ. And what the, the way he does that is kind of shifting this idea from the way the world sees us is should not just be us as individuals, but it should be the power of Christ that has worked in us and is now on display on the outside. And so we'll read about that, Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. You can follow along with me. Paul says, Therefore, as God's holy people, chosen and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So what we'll see this morning is, is Paul identifies our new place uh, in kind of three ways. First, he tells us, this is who you are. You are God's holy people. And then he tells us, because you're God's holy people, you need to be committed to working out your relationships with each other. And then finally, he tells us, because you're God's holy people, you need to be committed to worshiping God together. But he starts with this idea of you are God's holy people, chosen and dearly loved by him. And then he jumps in to now clothe yourselves with these things. But the thing that's essential for us to understand is before we get into how we should be compassionate, kind, patient, loving, peaceful, forgiving, all these things... Those are not things that we do to try to earn our place as God's holy people. Paul's clear to us. You are chosen and you are dearly loved by God because of what Christ has already done for you. And that little nuance is essential to understand because it's, it's the difference between a free and life-giving faith and kind of a, a, a stifling, soul-sucking legalism. Right? Any, any attempt at holiness that starts on the outside and tries to work its way inside is doomed to failure from the start. And what Paul is telling us is, look, before we get into how you're supposed to live, you need to remember who you are. You are God's holy people. 
Earlier in Colossians, he's told us, you were once enemies of God, but now you have been brought into his family. You were on your own. You were, you were his enemies because of your behavior, but now he has won you over and transferred you into the kingdom of the son he loves. You are brought together as one, united in the body of Christ. And, and just reminding us again and again and again, this is who you are. And because this is who you are, This then is how you live. You will live, he says, as those who are clothed in compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. This is how God has acted towards us in Christ, and it's how he now enables us to act in our relationships with each other. Paul's teaching us that these things not only must flow from the inside out, but they will become the the filter that changes the way we see the world and and through which all of our thoughts, all of our emotions, all of our speech, all of our behavior runs. The primary way, Paul says, that, that the world knows we are Christians is by the overflow of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience that we display. Uh, last fall, we did about an eight-week series, eight or nine weeks, on the, the fruit of the Spirit. And we talked about how uh, when, when we're going to exhibit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all these things as the supernatural work of God in us, it requires that we are pushed beyond our natural abilities in these areas. Right? And, and so I think a, a similar thing needs to be kept in mind here because Paul says that we are to clothe ourselves in compassion, kindness, patience, but the way that we do that is not by avoiding difficult situations. Right, the, the, so, so as a Christian, what this means is if I have a, a particularly difficult relationship with a friend or a coworker, the way I display the character of Christ is not by walking away and turning my back on that and saying, well, they just, they bother me too much, so I need to move over here where I can actually be compassionate. But instead, the way it works is in life's most difficult situations and relationships, we are clothed in the character of Christ, and it is most obvious in seasons when we are pushed beyond our natural abilities. Paul does not tell us to clothe yourself by your own power, with your own spirit, in your own ability to do these things. But instead, these work in us because of what Christ has done for us so we don't have to fear difficult situations or difficult people. No matter who you are, no matter what you do, no matter where you are, he's reminding us you are clothed in the character of Christ because your identity is found as God's holy people chosen and loved by him. Paul recognizes that life can still be difficult, that even when we've entered into the season of life, this new identity, uh, we're still going to be aggravated. We're still going to get upset. We're still going to mess up at times. And so he finishes with it just some very realistic um, advice for us. He tells us, first of all, if, if you're going to live as God's holy people, and again, the, the, we've got to remember here that the call that Paul is placing on our lives is not just an individual call. It's not just about what you do, but it's about what we all do together. We are all called to display compassion, kindness, love. We are all called as a community to be a place where these things are obvious and at work. And so what he is showing us here is that if that's going to happen, if we're going to do this individually and if we're going to do this collectively as a group, then we better be committed to working it out. If, if you're a parent of kids at home, I, I don't know that it honestly matters how old they are, but if you have kids at home right now, I think there's probably a 95% chance that in the, the last week you've uttered the words, just work it out. 
right? I, like, we were in the family with our kids last night, and I think I said it three times in one hour. Just work it out. And I remember growing up, my mom would say that to me all the time. My sister would go in to tattle on something I had done. And so there were two responses that my mom had all the time. The first one was usually, Chris, get in here. And that one never ended well. The one I preferred to hear was when she would say, Mindy, just work it out with your brother. And, and I love that because it meant like I wasn't, this story didn't end with a spanking, right? So, uh, but as a parent, you say this to your kids. And what you mean when you say that is, look, this is the only brother or sister you have. These are the only siblings you have. They're going to be there your whole life. And yes, they might be terribly annoying. And yes, right now you might not want to look at them, but you better work it out. Because they're family, and that's what family does. They're always going to be there. Paul is giving a similar advice here in Colossians 3. He's no uh, kind of remote idealist who thinks that, well, once Jesus works in our hearts, then we live in this peaceful utopia with other believers. But he understands we're still going to offend each other. We're still going to be offended by each other. We're still going to say things we shouldn't. We're still going to act selfishly at times that though we have been transferred into the kingdom of light, there will still be times where our old self rises up and shows itself and it harms our personal relationships with each other. And the advice Paul gives us can be boiled down to just work it out. Lay aside this false expectation that being a Christian and being part of a church is going to be some experience of relational utopia. Forget the idea that you'll never be offended or hurt or that everyone will always understand exactly what you mean and just come in with a realistic understanding that yes, Christ has changed us from the inside out, but we're still going to have to work on this together. And Paul lays out three key ways that we work it out in our relationships. He tells us that we need to forgive each other that we need to love each other, and that we need to seek peace with one another. In verse 13, he says, Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you are called to peace. This idea first, he tells us, is to be forgiving, bear with each other, and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord has forgave you. Paul holds us to a standard, and again, if we're coming in with any kind of false ideal, he quickly strips it away. He starts his line in defining our relationships with each other by saying, bear with each other. That's not the most positive, life-affirming relational advice. And like we, we hosted a wedding last Saturday here at Christian Chapel. It was a, a couple, the girl grew up here, and it was a, a beautiful ceremony. And, and like a lot of weddings, it had, you know, not the traditional sign-in book, but a book where you could write in a little bit of advice. And so Angie and I wrote our little note in there, and I could see the other ones on the page and a few pages before, and they, it was all wonderful. It was all like, oh, God has brought you together, love each other, care for each other. It's the beginning of a beautiful relationship. I don't know, it's people throwing movie quotes in there. But um, nobody wrote, grin and bear it, bear, good luck, bear with each other. You know, nobody says that. That's not the advice you want to get on your wedding day of like, oh, this is so beautiful, but we know what's coming. You know, nobody does that. But that's kind of what Paul is doing for us here. He has painted this beautiful and glorious picture of who Jesus is. 
The verse right before in, in Colossians 3.11 that we looked at last week, he's told us, look, you, you have been brought into a world where there's no Jew or Gentile, no slave or free, no barbarian or Scythian, because Christ is all and Christ is in all. It's this wonderful, beautiful, ideal picture of all division melting away and us being united together. And immediately after that, he says, but if you want to live that way, you are going to have to be overflowing with compassion, with kindness, with patience, and you better be willing to bear bear with each other. Why? Because we are all just a little bit annoying. We're all just a little bit sinful. And even as Christ works in us, we still face temptation. Sometimes we defeat it and sometimes we give into it. And when we give into it, it never just affects us, but it has ripple effects to the community around us. And so what Paul says is, I know that's going to happen. So you people bear with each other and you people forgive just as God has forgiven you. And even his idea of forgiveness, it stands at odds with our cultural understanding because we, a lot of times in our culture, think of forgiveness as, uh, you know, it's a gift that I give to myself. Like If you've wronged me, I will forgive you for my own sake. But Paul says you're to forgive each other as God has forgiven you. And how has he forgiven us? He's forgiven us freely before we have ever made an effort to ask for it or to earn it, he has extended the gift of forgiveness to us, and all that's left for us to do is receive. And so Paul says, in your relationships with each other, offer the gift of forgiveness the moment you recognize that you've been wronged. Regardless of if they own up to it, regardless of if they apologize, regardless of if they ask for your forgiveness, you offer it because forgiveness is essential for healthy relationships. It's essential for us to live as God's holy people chosen and dearly loved by him. Then he tells us not only be forgiving, but we also need to be loving. Verse 14, he says, over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. You know, it's it's very difficult to be authentically compassionate, kind, humble, or gentle without being loving. Love is the catalyst for the character of Christ being sown in us and displayed through us. Love is the defining characteristic of God's holy people. This is what Jesus told his disciples. He said, the world will know you belong to me by your love for each other. The love of God is what enables us to love each other the way he intends. And the love of God is what causes us to seek forgiveness and to offer forgiveness to overcome any strain or division that is again risen up between us. Again, if we're, if we're going to live in the community that God has called us to, whether that is the most intimate relationship between a husband and a wife or a parent and a child or friends or neighbors or us here in a local community church or in the, the global church, it all, all of those connections are driven by the love of God. It, all of our attempts to do them outside of his love will fall short because we're just not strong enough to overcome those differences. But when our hearts have been transformed, Paul says love is what binds all of these things together in perfect unity. And so when you love God first and you love him most and you love others, he will flow through it and and our love for him and for each other will cause us to pursue peace with each other. Verse 15, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you are called to peace. The, The picture Paul provides for us here is brilliant. Earlier in Colossians, he's told us that we are the body and Christ is the head. And that we can never become detached from him. And because we're the body, it means we're also all connected with each other. 
Here he tells us, you seek peace with each other because you are the body of Christ. And so what that means is that if, if there's something between me and you, or there's something between you and you, we seek peace because the body isn't whole as long as that strife remains. And we, we've all experienced this personally in our physical bodies, right? You've had a, a moment where part of your body betrayed you, right? Where it was no longer working in sync with the rest of your body. And that can be from the simplest, like I woke up and I couldn't move my neck, to, to the more severe, like I received a diagnosis where my body is literally destroying itself. And what you know is that when, when the systems of your body are not working together, it affects all of you. Right? It affects your emotional well-being, your mental well-being. It affects your relationships. It affects the way you work. It affects every single part of your life when your body is not in sync. Paul's pushing us towards the same idea of we have to pursue peace with each other because we're all part of the same body. And if we allow division and strife to remain, it prevents the body of Christ from operating at its full capacity in the world. And so we're quick to forgive. We are driven by love and we constantly seek peace with each other. We don't settle for, oh, that's just always going to be between us. But as we forgive as the Lord has forgiven us, as we love as he has loved us, it will cause us to seek peace with each other that is real and that is lasting. So Paul begins to push us in this direction of, hey, you've got to be committed to work it out. If you're going to live as God's holy people, his, his ones who are chosen and dearly loved, you've got to be committed to working it out with other believers. This is a, an individual call to Christ, and it's a community call. You are saved into the body of Christ. None of us are an island to ourselves in the family of God. We are all connected with one another. So Paul says, this is who you are. It changes your identity. Because that's your identity, now this is what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to be committed to working it out. And then he finishes by reminding us, because you're God's holy people, because you're going to work it out with each other, you need to commit to worshiping God together. He says in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. You see, this passage, uh, along with many others in the New Testament, summarizes for us what exactly we're doing here today. I don't know how much you ever give thought to why do we get up? Why do we gather together on a weekly basis? Why do we uh, come in and spend an hour, an hour and a half listening to the scriptures proclaimed, praying together, singing together? Like why? That's not a cultural phenomenon. It's a scriptural mandate, right? The gathering together of the church is essential to the life and the health of each individual believer and to the community of believers, and what Paul tells us here is, is we're coming together each week to pray the scriptures together, to read the scriptures, to discuss the scriptures, to sing the scriptures. And we're doing all of that as a continual reminder to ourselves that all of this is not about me, but it's about God. We're coming together each week and in the midst of a world that is sending us a thousand different messages about who we are and what we should do, we come together each week to recenter ourselves in the truth of Scripture and be reminded of our identity as God's holy people and how that now works itself out. See, Paul tells us, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. 
And so he pushes us beyond even this idea. Sometimes Christians are referred to as people of the book. But, but we're more than that because we don't just come on a Sunday to hear theological statements about God. We don't just come to check the doctrinal boxes and say, I agree, I agree, I agree, so I sign my name at the bottom and I'm a Christian. Paul says, let the word of Christ, the living word of Christ dwell richly in you. It means when we gather together and the scriptures are proclaimed, it is always supposed to be a life-giving experience. It's a dynamic moment where one person is challenged, another is encouraged, another receives healing, another hears the gospel for the very first time, and as the gospel is proclaimed, our hearts are drawn together in Christ. But even there, Paul says, after that, let it dwell richly in you, and you teach and admonish each other. You know, the the idea, we don't complete this instruction just by coming on a Sunday and listening to me or whoever else happens to be preaching that day. But you must hear this command from Paul as a personal one to you, that you are also involved in the teaching and the admonition of the Scriptures. I know not everyone likes to hear that. Some of you, that comes very naturally. You kind of have that teaching bent, and so it's easy for you maybe to to serve in that function in your home group or a a Wednesday night adult class or with kids or teenagers. You're fine kind of leading the the formal Bible study. Others, though, that's the most terrifying thing in the world. You think, I'm never going to teach. I'm never going to do that. I'm not going to do it. But what I want you to think of is, is Paul's instruction here is not directed primarily at those who stand up in front of a gathering of believers to expound the scriptures together. But his instruction to let the word of Christ dwell richly in you and you teach and admonish one another is directed to the church, to all of us. This is what we're supposed to do not only when we gather together for worship, but whenever we gather together with other believers. It doesn't necessarily even mean that you have to pull out your Bible at the dinner table or the lunch table or in the meeting room and say, this is what the Bible says. But it means through your life and through your actions and through you telling your stories, you become part of the instruction and the admonition of the Lord. You become part of the work of the Spirit in our world of telling others, this is the way of the Lord and this is the way you walk in it. Through your example, you are showing those who come behind you, this is what it means to let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. It means he redefines the way we kind of navigate this season of young adulthood. He redefines the way we navigate parenting. He redefines the way we navigate retirement. And by telling your stories, you're you're telling others through your actions and your words who come behind you, this is what it looks like. You can do this too. You're teaching them and you're admonishing them. You're encouraging them. I was was reminded of this uh, Friday and Saturday. Angie and I went to the the lake with a, a couple of our friends. And we both grew up, Angie lived on a lake, my family had a boat, so one of the things that that we decided, you know, we kind of had a little bucket list for our kids of things they need to do before they leave our house at 18. And uh, one of the things we have on that list is they need to learn to water ski. Now, I know that has absolutely no real-world application, but they're going to learn, okay? It's just they're going to water ski, they're going to know how to snow ski, and they're going to drive a stick shift. And, uh, you know, there's some other things, too, but those are... Those are the three that they don't make any real-world difference, but they're just going to do it. Um, and so a, a couple summers ago, we had started trying with our oldest, and uh, he, he just didn't get it, didn't get it. Well, we were going out, and I was telling him, like, hey, buddy, this weekend, you're going to learn to ski. 
I'm going to get in the water with you, and it's going to be fine. So Friday, I get in the water with Connor, who's 11, and, and he, he picked it up. He pops right up, and he starts going, and I, you know, I'm left in, out in the middle of the lake kind of swimming for the shore while they just take off and, and go with him. And, and it was great. I was so proud. But the thing is, though, Connor's little brother Corbin is, is eight, and Friday night when we were eating dinner, he said, if Connor can do that, I can. He was like, tomorrow morning, I'm going to try. So I was like, all right, I had, I had no expectations for him because all we had were adult skis. And so we slap him on little 60-pound Corbin, and he's just all bones and, and bones out in the water. I'm like, all right, here we go. And he just pops up and takes off. Like, it's the most wonderful thing in the world. But he, he never would have tried if he hadn't seen his brother do it on Friday. But because his brother, I mean, there, you know, this is one of those things that he can use for good or bad. Like, well, if Connor did it, I'm going to do it. This time it was used for good. If Connor can ski, I can ski. When Paul gives us this instruction that you are to teach and admonish one another, it's the same thing. Again, it doesn't mean that you have to have the gift of teaching, but it means that you're willing to let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, and you're willing to share with others, this is what it looks like in this season of life. And so sometimes when you suffer greatly, when you mourn the loss of someone you love, when you walk through difficulties of job losses or sickness, and you're willing to share and to tell your story with others, you are teaching and admonishing them that when the word of Christ dwells in you, he's with you in your darkest hours. Paul says, let it live in you. We are never just people of the book, but we are people whose lives have been transformed by the God whom the book reveals. We surrender to the scriptures because they point us to the ongoing activity of God in our lives. And Paul finishes by telling us, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. When we sing, we're not just looking for something that sounds good, but we're, we're looking and, and striving to sing songs that declare the truth of who God is and the difference it makes in our world. Paul tells us to sing the Psalms, and if you read through the Psalms, you would see it's not all celebration and life is great, but there are songs of mourning, there are songs of lament, there are songs of hope. In all of these things, we are reminding ourselves this is who God is. The hymns are the the great doctrinal statements of the church about the truth of who Jesus is and the difference it makes in our world. And he says, as we sing these songs, our hearts will overflow in gratitude towards God. So we sing songs that turn our attention, our emotions, our hearts towards the Lord and his activity. That's why it remains a part of what we do each week. It's not just a, a warm-up for a sermon or something to do before we leave, but it's, it's a unique space where we join our hearts together and declare who God is. And the way God has wired our souls and our minds is that, that sometimes It's the lyrics of a song rooted in the scriptures that dig deeper than the spoken word ever can. They they get down and under the issues and the circumstances. It's it's why one of the things we, we hear commonly is like, we sang that song and all I could do was weep. It's not necessarily because it was a particularly beautiful arrangement. As much as it is, the lyrics declared the glory of God. And so when we sing songs that talk about the suffering of Christ, it brings us assurance that he's with us in our lowest moments. When we sing about his death and resurrection, it gives us confidence that we too will be resurrected with him. 
when we sing about how God is the one who created the earth, the one who performs miracles, it gives us confidence that we will never face any obstacle that is bigger than him. And so we join our voices together as a way to corporately declare we believe this to be true about God. The scriptures teach it to us and the the songs drive it home in us. I think our, our worship leaders at Christian Chapel historically have done a wonderful job of this, of trying to make sure we always sing songs that mean something. Right? That there, there's no kind of cotton candy theology of, well, we'll just sing this because we like the beat. But to, to make sure, whether it's an old hymn, a new one, a chorus, a song, whatever it is, that it declares the truth of who God is, of who we are, that it brings, sometimes it's going to bring hope and encouragement. Sometimes it's going to challenge us. Sometimes it's going to feel like a weight is being placed on us under the glory of God. Sometimes it's going to feel like a weight is being lifted off of us as we sing of his freedom. But in every case, as we sing, we're declaring this is who God is, and we're joining our voices with those around us. And it's, it's a, a public act of saying it's true for me, and it's true for you, and it's true for everyone everywhere. And Paul says the end result of letting the, the word of Christ dwell in you, of singing these song, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs together, is that your hearts will overflow in gratitude towards God. See, as, as the people of God, we must be committed to worshiping together. Not so that our church attendance numbers are better than our neighbor's church attendance numbers. Like, I don't come to worship on a Sunday so that I can feel good about myself and how many other people came. I come to worship on a Sunday because my ego will not die. And I need to be reminded every week, my life is all about Jesus. I need to worship every Sunday because those temptations come up again and again. And I need to be reminded every week, He has provided the victory over all things. I come to worship on a Sunday, not so that you will look at me or look at the people who are up here, but so that we all together will lift our eyes up to see the God who knows us, who loves us, and who has saved us. And it's why, as followers of Christ, we must make sure wherever we are and whatever we're doing, that worshiping God with other believers remains a part of our weekly experience. May we never take it for granted. May we never think that we've matured beyond it. The scriptures again and again and again remind us you are not just called to Christ individually, but we are called to him together. You are brought into a family, into a body, into a kingdom, and your reach must go up, but it must also go outside to side to your brothers and to your sisters. And if we commit to live this way, if we will live as those who are clothed in the character of Christ, those whose lives overflow with compassion, kindness, and patience, those who are quick to forgive and be forgiven, those who genuinely love each other despite our differences and despite the ways we might have offended each other, if we live as those who seek peace with one another, we live as those who on a weekly basis are being reminded it's not about me, it's about Jesus, that his word dwells in me, it lives in me, it flows out of me. 
then and only then do we shine like a city on a hill to a world of darkness. See, the, the world doesn't need another good Christian show on a Sunday morning, but it needs the people of God to live like the people of God every day of the week. It needs you to be clothed in the character of Christ in your home, to be clothed in the character of Christ in your neighborhood, to be quick to forgive in the office, to seek peace with others at school. And as we do this, it stands out. As we are united with each other through the finished work of Christ, it presents a picture to the world of an entirely different way of living, one that is clearly supernatural. See, the, the great thing about the gospel is that people see it working through you. And the people who know you best, they know something supernatural has happened. Because they, they knew you. They know you. You're not that compassionate. You're not that kind. You're not that patient. But when they see these characteristics of Christ on display, it adds so much weight to your testimony of God has changed me. And he hasn't just made me a better person, but he's literally transformed my heart from the inside out. Ryan and the band are going to come back and, and lead us in a few songs this morning, just kind of declaring the reality of this is who God is and this is what he has done for us. And if you'll stand with me, I want to pray with us before they do that. God, we thank you for your goodness and for your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you have come and changed us. I pray especially this morning, Lord, for those who feel far from you, who feel detached from you, who feel that the promises of your compassion, your kindness, and your patience are far off. May they know that the Jesus we read about in the scriptures, the powerful God that we sing about, is the same one who's coming to their heart this morning to bring change and life to them. Lord, we acknowledge our weakness and inability to live as your holy people. Yet we thank you that you have chosen us and loved us. You have placed us in this new life and enabled us to live this way. God, I ask that as we sing the truth of who you are, our hearts would overflow in gratitude towards you. That we would be able to live in the love you have sown in our hearts, display your character to our world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Christian Chapel. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com.